Okay, continuing in Philippians. Now, um, just by way of, uh, just so you can feel my pain, uh, the passage we're looking at today is like the, one of, some call it the greatest passage, text, that Paul's ever written. Which is pretty amazing, right? Others say of this passage that we're looking at, it's the most complicated, uh, controversial, ridden passage in the Bible. Others say things like, man, there's more literature that's been spilled on this passage than possibly any other text in the Bible. So, whoo, let's have fun. Let's get into this text, right? So there's this blockbuster book that just came out. Um, it's the most extensively researched book of its kind. Church leaders in every tradition are talking about it. It was sent to me by someone not in our tradition, though the book is written by someone in our tradition. So experts are saying things about this book like, quote, top-level research and assessment, quote, robust research, quote, one of the most significant books you will read, quote, the church needs lab work to assess her health, this is it. Quote, one of those books I wish did not have to be written, but it did. On a topic I wish didn't have to be thought about, but we do. Quote, this book is a clarion call. Quote, the best, most comprehensive, cutting-edge research on some 40 million Americans. End quote. What is the book? It's called The Great Dechurching. Quote, America is undergoing the largest, fastest religious shift in its history. Forty million people have left the church. To put that in perspective, you have the first great awakening, you have the second great awakening, and you have every major revival in American history. If you put them all together, they can't even come close to those that came into the church that are now exiting the church. It's been 20 years in the making. People say it started probably like right around when I started getting in the ministry. So uh, in, in church ministry in the 1998s when we first got here. Uh, and really the 2000s is when it's been happening. And then when the uh, pandemic hit and the cultural turmoil hit, it went off the cliff. Like off the cliff. Fell off the cliff. So who is leaving the church? Answer, people like you and me, church people, uh, orthodox people. So the survey shows that it's not just people that believe in the Apostles' Creed, which is a great creed. I mean, it's the earliest creed. It's a very unifying creed. It, it cuts across every tradition. But you get to what's called the Nicene Creed, which gets a little more gritty and a little more texture to it, things like the Bible is the Word of God, things like the Trinity, things like the Son of God and sin and redemption. These are people that affirm that. Who is leaving? People like you and me. The demographics are pretty evenly split. Men and women, men 52% are leaving, women 48%. Black, 26%. White, 27%. Hispanics have the least exodus at 14%. Asians, the most at 34%. That was striking to me. It's evenly split between Catholic and Protestant, 32% for both. 
It's e almost evenly split between political identification. Democrat, 29%. Republican, 21%. Independent, 23%. People are leaving the church from every income level, every educational level, every cultural, racial, demographic, every area of the country, north, south, east, west, the Midwest, urban, rural, suburban. Who is leaving people like you and me? But the most devastating casualty of it all is children. This stat, this stat is scary. In just one, in just a generation, the children of the de-churched will be unchurched. So these people leave the church, they take their children with them, or they have children, and now their children, 40 million people that used to be in the church, 40 million people that used to be in the church, now have children that will not be unchurched. So why are people leaving the church? Why are people de-churching? Well, everyone has their answers, as you can imagine, right? But they came across three big buckets. Bucket one, bucket two, bucket three, that seemed to be all the answers kind of go into one of these three buckets. Bucket number one, the sociological answer. Events trigger reality, right? So events are like a fist that hits a cup and brings the water out. So what the pandemic and the cultural chaos did was trigger what's already there. Reveal what's already there. For example, uh, a dude for the Washington Post, some guy Carlos Lozada wrote, the virus isn't transforming us, it's just speeding up the changes already there, already underway. Okay, that's answer number one. Answer number two, the true church answer. This is the folks that say it's church purification time. This is the separation of the sheep and the goats, which is so interesting because that, we're said that it's not to happen till the end. And so you have an example like this. Thomas Kidd, author and research professor at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, writes, we're not so much concerned with mere church members, but regenerate church members. So what's happening is, is that we're identifying who are really regenerate Christians and who are not. That's what some folks say. Answer number three, the what's happening to the church answer. There's something wrong with the church. Something not good, not beautiful, not true is happening in the church. Something not of salt and salt of light is happening in the church. Something that's self-inflicted is going on in the church. Some church leaders say this. Some cultural leaders say this. For example, in an Atlantic article, claims the movement that spent 40 years at war with secular America is now at war with itself, and the result is a fracturing of the American church. End quote. So who's right? The D Church book says this. The data from our survey suggests they all are. So here's what strikes me so far. So I'm like, I don't know. I mean, I had to read ahead to get some stats for today, right? So I'm going to go back and read things that I just blew by. But here's what strikes me so far. A quarter of the de-church, that's 10 million people, so you've got 40 million, a quarter of them, 10, 
have de-churched because of a pain point. That's the word, the language of the book. <coughs> a pain point is that the church, in the church, members, attenders had experienced some point of genuine pain in the church, from people in the church, from the leadership in the church. So, you know, usually the headlines kind of stuff are just interrelational personal dynamics. Uh, real trauma, they're disillusioned by the church, uh, they lost hope in the church. Quote, these are de-churched casualties, is how they labeled them. Three-quarters of the de-churched, that's 30 million people, simply stopped going. Why did they stop? I mean, as soon as I saw that, I'm like, why did they stop? Why did they stop? The answer, there was no aha reason. Life relationship circumstances just happened. A change in their life just happened. A change in their relationships just happened. A change in their circumstances just happened. Quote, there's no animating concern. Think about that. No animating concern. This is what strikes me. You know what this says to me? There's no animating need. There's no animating hunger. There's no animating thirst for church. Perhaps 30 million people are simply saying, there's nothing compelling about the church. There's nothing that moves me, pulls me, grips me with church. There's no, I need to go to church. There's no, my family needs to go to church. There's no, my favorite produce person at HEB needs to go to church. There's no, my doctor, my plumber, my teacher, my classmates, my teammates need to go to church. There's just no need to go to church. So according to the book, 30 million people are simply saying, look, I moved. I got a new job. We got pregnant. We had some kids. I got COVID. There was the pandemic. We got divorced. We had financial setbacks and had to get a second job. I'm a single parent. I now work on Sundays. The kids went to college. We're empty nesters. And when it happened, I just didn't go back to church. I just didn't miss church. 30 million people are saying church is, well, underwhelming. Let's stand.
for the hearing of this text. All right, you see the so? It means therefore. So you remember your, your geeky English teacher? What is the there, therefore? Remember that, those days? So, therefore, is pointing back to what we looked at last week. So remember what we looked at last week. The local church is a gospel team. Therefore, here are now some implications. Here's some applications to the local church being a gospel team. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, this is a first-class condition clause. You know what that means? It assumes it's true. So it goes like this. If there is, and there is, any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection, any sympathy, complete my joy. Paul is saying, make my joy complete. Local church, make my joy complete. By, that is, being of the same mind, having the same love, being of the full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this in mind. Literally, continue to think this way. Think this way over and over and over again. Don't ever stop thinking this way. Among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who now comes Mount Everest. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name. The name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, under the earth, just in case there's any place left. And every tongue confess the name Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. So Lord, fill us with your spirit. This is a mighty passage. I feel so unmighty to preach this. So would you fill us with your spirit. May this absolutely be a demonstration of your spirit and power in all of us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so Philippians is written to a healthy local church. We've already established that. We could say it this way. A church, a people, not de-churching. A good question would be to ask, well, why are they a healthy church? You know, at this point, it'd be like, okay, so why are they a healthy church? Why are these people not de-churching? Like the American church. The Apostle Paul's answer from last week in 1, 27 through 30, remember the Bible's answer, God's answer was this, because the Philippian church is a gospel team. That's the answer. When a church is a gospel team, remember, there's many metaphors and images from all the Bible Paul could have picked to describe the church that's healthy at this point. He could have grasped everything from the Old Testament. He could have grasped everything that he's written about already in the New Testament, but instead he picked a team as the metaphor. Amazing. 
And he picked not just any team, but the ultimate team, a gospel team, a team of people, as C.S. Lewis says, standing side by side, looking at the same thing. What, you two? The gospel. What is everybody looking at on this team? The gospel. What is everyone building their life around, which we just read? And then our confession, it was passage from last week. Everyone in this church is learning to build their messy life around Jesus and his salvation, their relationships, their parenting, their marriages, their singleness, the way they handle money, the way they look at sex. Everything is being intentionally, how do you build your life around Jesus and his salvation? That's this church. So they're one mind, one spirit, gospel team. They're one mind, one spirit of a gospel team that's striving side by side. This is the text from last week for the faith of the gospel. You know what that means? They know that their mission is the gospel. And they know there's no false dichotomies in their mission. It's called faith in the gospel. Did you see that? Faith in the gospel. Well, what does the unbeliever need? Faith in the gospel. Well, what does the believer need? Faith in the gospel. So this is one mission for unbeliever and believer, churched and unchurched, that the church exists for faith in the gospel for everybody? Yes, Paul says. Well, we're evangelistic church. Great. You don't have the mission down. Well, we're a discipleship Christian education church. We're all about theology and doctrine. Great. You don't have the mission down. Well, we're all about small groups and connecting and authenticity and being authentic people. Great. You don't have the mission down. Well, we're all about social justice and all the anti-stuff and stopping all these sins in the world. Great. You don't have the mission down. One mission. The gospel. And the last thing Paul said last week, he says, when that happens, this team is characterized by no fear. And he says, in anything. There's so many fearful stuff that comes at us, no fear. There's so many fearful stuff that comes out of us, no fear. Amazing. A healthy church. So what about today's text? What is it about? Today's text understands and wants to help the 10 million de-churched people because of a pain point. Because remember, this text is an application of a gospel team. He just stated the big idea, gospel team, but now he's going to apply a gospel team to the human condition. And so we're going to apply it to 10 million people that just de-churched in the past 20 years and really right off the cliff four years now. And then today's text understands and wants to help the 30 million de-churched, the ones that have no animating need to go to church because church is so underwhelming. So that's the plan. The big idea is, what is a local church? A gospel team. So what, Paul? Who cares if it's a gospel team? What does it matter in the world? Paul says, well, let me tell you. And that's what this text is about. All right, so let's get started. A quarter of the de-churched, 
10 million have a pain point. These are called de-church casualties. I'm just going to add one other data point to it that I wish they would have done, but I'm sure it's almost like assumed. But those that are in full-time ministry absolutely know this data point. This is given to every missionary, every church planner, every church person, every staff person. And then I communicate it to church leaders, so I'm sure they communicate it to their church leaders. What's the number one reason pastors leave the ministry? What's the number one reason church leaders leave the ministry? What's the number one reason church staff leave the ministry? What's the number one reason leadership, ministry leaders, like in campus ministries and, and service ministries worldwide, all the parachurch ministries, what's the number one reason people leave the ministry? Answer, a pain point with people. particularly with people on your team. So let's throw that into the de-church mix. A pain point is just beginning to happen in the Philippian church. This is amazing. I didn't even know this. And I'm studying this passage, and all of a sudden it made a reference to chapter 4 and mentioned two women, two women named Euodia and Syntyche. And Paul says to them, I entreat you, ladies, I entreat you to come together. I entreat you to agree in the Lord. And all of a sudden, we got two women, two ministry leaders in the church. These are not two pastors in the church. And for all that dynamics, I guess we got to wait another couple months for that theology after dark to deal with that. These are team members on the gospel team in Philippi. These are significant ministry leaders that Paul worked with in church planning the church at Philippi. And they're on the brink of a pain point. Pain points always involve people in the church. Pain points always involve people. Us. People who get sinned against. And people who have people they care about that get sinned against. And then we, you, sin against people. I sin against people. And then you, we, I, team, we sin against people that people care about. And then there's relational conflict. And relational conflict, people, pain points, happen when there's usually two people or groups of people that come together. And so you have interpersonal pain points, two people, and then you can have groups of interpersonal relationship pain points that happen as people sin and get sinned against and misunderstand. And listen, if you even just took not being sinned against out of the equation and you take everyone's personality differences and then you take gender differences and then you take different ways of seeing the world and we wonder why anyone has a sane moment. And we wonder why we can't communicate. What did you say? I don't even understand what you're saying. It's like you see the world so different from me. And the answer is, yes, we do. (laughs) It's crazy, right? Then you have the church conflict stuff. And this usually starts with people having different missions in church. And it always ends with it becoming personal. I've watched it for 20-something years. And 99.9% of the time, when that happens, people de-church. I've seen a couple incidences when pain points happen and people didn't 
and they actually deepened instead of de-churched. It was amazing. Rare, very rare. So my, most Bible experts agree we're looking at a pain point in process. This is a healthy church, but we're looking at a pain point that's starting to happen in the church. It could go either way. They could deepen as a church. They could de-church de as a church. Which will it be? So Paul says this, verse 2. Malachi. There we go, buddy. So Paul says, make my joy complete. This is amazing. So Paul, what's going to make your joy complete? Getting out of jail? Being released? Having all your centurion special forces dudes escort you out the gate? No. No. What makes my joy complete is that you be a gospel team. And then Paul does the strangest thing. Right after he says that, he just repeats what he said last week all over again. You know, every time I go overseas, I have this bad habit. And you're thinking, what's his bad habit? Well, I'm going to tell you. I have this bad habit. When someone doesn't speak English, I get louder. Okay! Do you know where I can get bread? Maybe Paul has that problem. Maybe Paul has that problem. Verse 2. Because of the same mind, be unified in your mind. Start thinking rightly, people, is what he's saying. He keeps going. Because of the same love, have God's love in you so you start loving each other. Start believing this stuff, people, he's saying. Be in full accord. In other words, unite around what I just said. Feel this way, people, he's saying. And of one mind. Will you please be of one mind? There Paul is again. One mind, one mind, one mind, one mind. The guy is saying one mind all the time in this passage. He keeps saying it over and over again because the church is one mission. One mission. So have one mind. Think about this, everybody. One mission. The gospel. If you do, you're unified. If you do, it will start becoming clear to your mind. If you do, you'll be a gospel team. If you do, you'll have the resources to deal with pain points. If you do, you will have an impact in the culture. If you do. If you do. Make my joy complete. So there's not two missions, there's not five missions, there's not 50 missions. The gospel, well, there's an old ancient prophet, a guy named Habakkuk, and he was the first one that actually gave the mission to the church, or one of them, that kind of codified it, made it real clear. He says this, where is it? 
The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So how does water, you know, floods are devastating, right? Water goes everywhere. We know we got a lot of people in here that do restoration. The gospel is supposed to go everywhere. Every crack, every inch, every place in the world and in your relationships and in your life that's completely unevangelized. It's supposed to go there. So immediately Paul could be saying stuff to the church like this, immediate application, like, where is the unevangelized area of your life? Is it what you do with your girlfriend? Is it what money does to you? It kind of turns you into this control freak? Is it where you're always anxious? Is that where you're unevangelized and the gospel needs to go? Like the waters cover the sea? Other quick help here. The gospel brings, it bears fruit. We're still on this one point about a gospel team, but he brought it up, not me. All over again. Yes, the gospel bears fruit. You know what that means? The gospel is what Jesus does for you. The fruit of the gospel is now what it does in you and in the world. Do you see the difference? The gospel is the power of God. It's done outside of you. It's all about Jesus and what he did. His life, his death, his resurrection and ascension, what we're going to look at in a minute. These are Jesus events. This is outside of you. It's good news because he did it. He accomplished it. He finished it. But because it's so cataclysmic, cosmically powerful, it unleashes heaven on you and me. It bears fruit. It opens our eyes. It gives us a new life. We start thinking, feeling, doing differently. We actually now start having the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. We actually start being a human being and we start handling algebra the way it's been supposed to be handled. Everyone's wondering, why do you keep picking on algebra? I don't know. Really don't. It produces you the freedom to actually just like read a good book and Enjoy your kids and play with them. And you can do this freely now. You can just do it because it's good. Because it's good, beautiful, and true. It's human stuff. It's created stuff. It's good. And what the gospel does, it bears fruit. It enables you to like do stuff like sports and art and competition. And do it. And enjoy it for its own sake. Because it's good. Because when God said it's good, he packed part of his glory in it. And so when you tap into it, you get part of his glory in it, and that's why you like it, and that's why it's good, and that's why it's beautiful, and that's why it's true, and that's why we work hard, and that's why we have jobs, and that's why we love each other, and that's why we take care of each other, and that's why we make money, and we do a good product. We don't build bridges that fall down. We don't be lousy teachers, right? So this means Christians and groups of Christians and even ministry teams in the church can get together and do other good missions. Like stop human trafficking. You're never going to stop it, but stop it. That's why everywhere the church went, education, schools happened. That's why everywhere the church went, hospitals happened. Caring for the sick. And that's why the Bible says take care of the widows and the poor and the wrecked. But simultaneously at the same time, the church that's visible 
and organized and is the ordained ministry of word and sacrament, that church, that gospel team has one mission only, the gospel. Because the gospel unleashes Jesus into the world who bears all the fruit. You see that? See the difference? Okay. So why does Paul keep telling us Answer, because we keep forgetting. And everyone who de-churches has... All right, let's keep going. In verse 3, Paul finally gives the number one reason for pain points. You ready? The number one reason for de-churching. The number one reason for 10 million people leaving the church. What is it? The answer is self-importance. The number one reason... Why people de-church, the number one reason there's a pain point in your life and my life is because of self-importance. The need to be important. Do nothing, verse 3. Do nothing. Nothing? Nothing. Like, do algebra? Do marriage? Read your Bible? Do nothing. Pray? Do nothing. From selfish ambition, which literally means in all the lexicons, the need to be important. Uh, Doctrinally, this is called self-justification. Luther says, when the human heart is in its natural state. In other words, the human heart comes into the world in this state. The human heart, unaffected by any new supernatural power, its natural default state is the need to be important. It's called self-justification. What drives you, what moves you, everything you do, is that you need to justify your existence. And you need to justify your existence before God, and you need to justify your existence before other people, and you need to justify your existence before yourself, and you need to justify your existence before some standard measurement law. It could be the original 10, or it could be something like, be thin. Be successful. Be capable. Be the best. Paul says, and Luther says, it's what we do. It's what we do with algebra. It's what we do in our marriages. It's what we do when we read the Bible. It's what we do when we go to church. Wow. And Paul says, don't do that. (laughs) Don't be self-important. You're wrecking everything because you are. So in one sense, you could say it this way. You know, why are marriages so hard? Two people are being self-important. Why is church so hard? Because it's filled with people who need to be important. Why do things go sour at work and in institutions and in the culture? 
because people need to be important. All we have been watching for four years is people desperate to be important. Okay. What's amazing is why does this wreck everything in the next sentence, or? See the or? Or, let me say it this way. Do nothing from conceit. You know what conceit means? Empty glory. This is amazing. He's basically saying, you need to be important, and when you try to be important, you can't get importance. It's empty importance. You need to be justified. You try to get justified, but when you do, you can't. It's an empty justification. You're looking for importance. You're looking for glory, but it's an empty glory. You can't get it. In other words, all the strategies and all the ways, when you use algebra, you're exhausted by algebra because you need it to be important, right? You're trying to make your life important. You need... We sin against others because we need to be important. Or they blocked us from being important. You just blocked me from being important. Get out of my way. Or you just hurt my importance. Payback. Do you see how this works? What this means is that you and I are already at a pain point. You and I come into the world already at a pain point. And so what things do is they reveal our pain point. What do you mean, Jeff? You already have empty glory in you. That's painful. You already have an empty importance in you. That's painful. You already are missing justification. That's painful. You already are a walking pain point. So, of course, you're going to spread the joy to everybody else and give everybody else pain points who are already in pain point. So we're just a pain point waiting, waiting to happen. For 10 million people that have left the church because of pain points, of course they have. Everyone has pain points. Let's keep going. Three. Uh, but in humility, count yourselves more significant than yourselves. And then four, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but the interests of others. What prevents pain points? What keeps you from inflicting pain points on others? You know what Paul says? Think less of yourself. Wait, wait, wait. What's the answer to a pain point? Think less of yourself. How do I stop inflicting pain points on other people? Think less of yourself. How do I stop the pain points in my own life, this empty glory, empty importance, empty justification? Think less of yourself. Well, how? How do I love other people? How do I look after the interests of other people? Think less of yourself. Amazing. All right, y'all. You know, we just put, oh, my word. We just put up a new, we have a new thing back there. If everybody take a look at the back. You see that timer? That's how long I've been preaching already. Yeah, I asked for that. This wasn't like people saying, hey, man, can you do something like that? No, I asked for it because I really wanted to know. That's pretty scary. We need to really get moving. So I'm thinking maybe, maybe this is a two-parter. I think I got a little carried away this morning. So what am I going to do? How am I going to end it? This is how I'm going to end it. This is how I'm going to end it. The, the text that we're going to look at next week and spend some time in next week is the most glorious text maybe in all the Bible. It summarizes the aspects, the intric, intric, intricacies, 
It's a word. Look it up. <laughs> That's so bad. Just keep going. Fake it. Fake it. Keep going. It unpacks the wonders of who Jesus is and what he's done, starting from heaven and coming to earth and then what he did. And it's all about something called the name. It's so breathtaking. It not only sucks the oxygen out of the room, it gives you oxygen at the same time. And that name, what you need to know about that name for what we just looked at is this. He didn't hang on to his importance. He didn't hang on to his glory. And the answer is, well, Jesus, why didn't you? So I can give you mine. And that's what verse 1 is about. It talks about all these love things that Jesus, if there's this and there is in Jesus, remember that? When we start looking at the name and we start looking at who Jesus is and what he's done, it unleashes the most powerful thing that changes you and reaches you. You see, Jesus didn't ultimately do this because he's going to obey the law and be punished by the law. These are all things he definitely did. But the issue is why did he do it? He didn't do it to fulfill something abstract. He did it because he absolutely loves you. Why would I hold on to my glory? I love her. Why would I hold on to my importance? I love him. Why would I stay here? I can go. That is the name. And when you get that, you realize that he went to the cross for all your self-importance, your need to be important. That's why he went. And now he gives you all the importance you need all the justification you need, all the glory you need. That's what's happening in that passage. The name is happening. And the name is what we need to think more of. That's how you think less of yourself. Think more of the name. Let me pray for us.